Hey, up Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, we're discussing 508 Famous Last Words. But before I get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning all of our cast projects, seasons six and seven of Outlander, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon's got going on. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 5, Episode 8, Famous Last Words. Famous Last Words is a doozy, y'all. I had to pause this multiple times to write down notes, and all I kept thinking the entire time was, wow, this is such a heavy episode. There is so much dark matter that it's kind of hard to find the optimism in something like this, and I understand that that was the point and that all of our characters are in really dark places at this point, but man, it just really weighed on me for some reason today. Normally, I split this into storylines or topics of discussion, and this week we are going to go with characters as our topics of discussion. First up, we're going to talk about Jamie and how he's doing. Last episode, he lost his godfather, Murta, so he is pretty deep in grief, and there were a couple of really great scenes surrounding that, but by far and away, this episode was Roger-centric, so the majority of this podcast will probably be dedicated to talking about his storyline, but pretty early on in the episode, we get a scene between Jamie and Jocasta. Jocasta is visiting. It's three months after the events of Alamance. And she's visiting Myrta's grave. And then right before she goes, she and Jamie have a scene on the porch that really just cuts to the quick of the situation. She's saying, you know, I really wanted to get him a headstone, but I can. It's not my place. Myrta and I were not man and wife. And Jamie says, nor were he and I father and son, but that doesn't make the pain any less or easier to bear. I think that Jamie is really struggling. Clearly, he's lost people close to him, his father and his mother, namely. But we haven't seen him kind of try to overcome that hurdle. And I think one of the most powerful points in this entire scene between him and Jocasta was when they're saying goodbye and he steps in and he hugs her and Jocasta tells him how careful we'd be if we knew which goodbyes would be our last. That statement is so powerful to me because this episode, first and foremost, is about loss. To have a line like that so early on really encompasses everything that we're going to see in this episode, that our choices matter. And if we knew what was going to happen, if we could predict the future, then our decisions would be different. But We have to live every moment like it could be our last and make sure that the people that we love know we love them. So I really felt like that was a good baseline reading for this episode. And then, of course, after Jocasta leaves, Jamie has this moment where he kind of just sits down on the porch steps and he's holding the Luckin booth with the tartan pinned to it that Myrta always wore. In the last episode, we saw Claire take that item off of him and put it in her pocket. So 
Even though we didn't get to see it on screen, we know that at some point in the last three months, Claire gave that to Jamie, and now Jamie holds it and treasures it as the last thing that he has left of his godfather. So I was really touched by that, that he holds on to that and looks at it when he's missing Myrta. It's so cute. And honestly, I felt so terrible for Jamie. I feel bad for any character that we watch go through loss and grief. This is why I think this episode was so difficult for me to watch because a lot of our characters are going through loss or grief on some level. Jamie and Claire have one scene where Claire is in the kitchen reading and Jamie comes in and sets his beer mug down and she says, I'm glad you're finding a way to distract yourself. And he says, do you have a cure for grief in your time? Any of your wee beasties to gnaw away at it. Just to know that this is his headspace three months on from this really just goes to show what a miserable place Fraser's Ridge has been for the 10 10 to 11 weeks prior to this. Everybody's kind of starting to get on with their lives and stuff, but this is a massive thing that has happened. It shattered the family dynamic that they had. So it's all about relearning how to function with all the things that have happened at Alamance and with Governor Tryon. And while Jamie's kind of severed his ties a little bit since Tryon's moved on to New York, it's still a really tense situation with everything that Roger is going through. Yeah, let's start out with something light and cheery like Jamie grieving over Myrta's death. (laughs) Way to go, Chelsea. Let's start out with something optimistic. So the next thing that I wanted to discuss was a scene between Brie and Claire. There's only one in this episode, so I'm guessing you know which one I'm talking about. I thought it was a really fantastic, heartfelt scene. Sophie and Kat are always fantastic when they're together. There's something about them. They feed off of each other. They listen to each other. They have a wonderful mother-daughter dynamic that is just magical, I feel like. But all that being said, I think this conversation between Brie and Claire is unique because it is a conversation specifically about another character's mental health. While we see our characters struggle with the things that happen to them, we see Jamie struggle with what happened to him at Wentworth. We see Brie struggle with what happened to her in Wilmington. And later in this season, we see Claire struggle with what happens to her when she's abducted by the Browns. But It's not something that's talked about. The characters keep it bottled up inside, and Roger does too. Roger keeps it bottled up inside, and I think that that's kind of a default setting for people that are dealing with mental trauma. There's a stigma in society that you don't talk about your mental health issues. You keep it to yourself, and it ultimately ends up making the situation worse. Brianna brings up her friend Gail from MIT and how she went to see her friend's boyfriend with her after he came back from Vietnam and how he suffered such trauma in Vietnam that he had what Gail refers to as his thousand yard stare, where he's just so out of it. He's like a zombie. He didn't really suffer any physical trauma. As a result of what went on in Vietnam, like he was physically fine, but there was something psychologically wrong with him after his experience there. This is not an uncommon thing. As a 21st century audience, we are hearing more and more every day about mental health and what we can do to support those around us that may have PTSD or depression, things like this. Um, In the 20th century, 
they were still very much of the age where they recognized that there was a problem, but it was more so like either deal with it yourself or ignore it completely and hope it goes away is kind of the mindset of that time period, especially in a time when the Vietnam War was going on. I think it's the tragedy of modern warfare. I mean, you had some of these instances, and this is what Claire's talking about in her specific experience from World War II, and then probably some people, some patients that she had coming to her from the Vietnam War. They call it shell shock or war neurosis. Today, we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's all really the same thing. It's this psychological trauma to events that happen around you. And it manifests differently for everyone. Some people, they they simply can't process it. Some people go into a state of constantly reliving the worst events of their life. Some people lose memory altogether. Some people have nightmares. Some people lash out physically or verbally to cope with these things. But everybody processes these sort of things differently. This is what Brianna's worried about with Roger. She recognizes that it's a similar situation to her friend Gail's boyfriend in that it's like he's drowning in silence is how she describes it. And it just breaks my heart because Roger is normally a very open, honest, verbal person. He wants to talk about things. His talent with rhetoric is who he is. He's a professor from Oxford. And we see that displayed in the opening scene. And when that's taken away from him, he has an identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He doesn't have a sense of self-worth anymore. He is struggling. And then to not be able to verbalize that struggle makes it all the more intense of a situation. One thing that I really wanted to talk about with this post-traumatic stress and one reason why I really appreciated this conversation being brought up with Gail's boyfriend Even though it wasn't a massive part of the conversation, it still touched on the fact that the Vietnam War was kind of the start of this revolution of recognizing mental trauma in veterans. And I think that it was probably the beginning of modern warfare in that the weapons that were being used and the battle tactics that were happening. My grandfather didn't fight in the Vietnam War, but his brother did. And I remember hearing stories about how he came back just a completely different person. He was in the the Marines over in Vietnam. And I would hear terrible stories of just like him sitting next to, sorry, this might be a little graphic, but him sitting in a truck with a group of guys and this one guy's head basically just turning into mist. Like things like that are what people witness in modern warfare. And so I think a person can only take so much of that before their brain is just like, I'm done. We're not doing this anymore. I'm just shutting off. I'm shutting down. While Roger didn't witness this terror, these awful situations, something really awful did happen to him. And I think his brain is having a similar reaction. But the reason that I'm kind of drawing this conclusion is because I want to take a moment to recognize what our veterans are going through. The Vietnam War was an absolutely horrendous time in American history. We lost 58,000 soldiers, Marines, airmen. And 
What's even worse is the epidemic of mental health problems that have come out of the Vietnam War and more recent wars and battles. We actually lost more people to veteran suicide in the years between 2008 and 2017 than we did in the entire Vietnam War, guys. And this isn't something that is talked about a lot, but I feel like with the undercurrent of suicide in this episode, the parallel between PTSD and suicide needs to be looked at a little bit in this episode that I'm talking about. So I just wanted to take a moment to tell you that there are charities that specifically exist to combat this epidemic of veteran suicide, one of which is the Till Valhalla Project. You can purchase items, clothing, jewelry, stickers through this website, and 20% of the proceeds go towards suicide prevention for veterans because we're currently at a rate where we're losing 22 veterans a day to suicide. And coming from a family with a strong military background, both my grandfather served, my brother served, that hits very close to home for me. Like I said, I have great uncles that fought in the Vietnam War and they're still struggling with their mental health over it. So if you guys want to support the Till Valhalla Project, I will post the link in this episode. It's a great charity and they are working really hard to help combat this mental health issue. So... With all of that, I think that while Roger, like I said, isn't a soldier, he didn't go through the Vietnam War, he did go through Alamance, and he did experience something really terrible at the hands of people that he thought he should be able to trust. So it was really scarring for him, and not only did that happen, and not only did he almost die, he lost his voice because of it. The one thing that probably mattered the most to him without him realizing it, I mean, yes, He has his family. He has Brianna and Jimmy. And at the end of the day, that's what pulls him back from that ledge. That's what keeps him stepping off of that cliff. But he didn't realize what he had until it was gone. And then without that one thing that kind of gave him his identity, whether it was his singing ability or his ability to make a speech, bring people to his side, talk about the real problems in life, when he had that taken away from him... It was really hard for him to find his way back. He didn't know who he was anymore. And I think that Rick Rankin did a phenomenal job showcasing Roger's struggle, honestly. It's heartbreaking to watch a character go through something like this. And for basically an entire episode, Rick Rankin didn't have any dialogue until like the very end. And for him to be able to just use his face and his body language to portray what's going on through Roger's head. It's really amazing. And I almost felt like when Brianna says, hey, if you can't talk, like, you know, 70% of communication is nonverbal. We really saw that, that we didn't need the words to understand what was going on in his head. To that end, we got a different technique for storytelling in this episode. We got the silent film thing going on. While I appreciated what they were trying to do, I also was kind of upset at a few points because there were things that the silent film bits covered that I really, really wanted to see, like I wanted to be there, particularly the very first scene after they find him hanging and they cut him down. I wanted all of that dialogue. I wanted all of that emotion and they kind of just 
like cut my legs out from underneath me. So that hurt. Um, I thought that this episode overall was really good, but that one stung a little bit because that was one of my favorite scenes from the book, as bad as that sounds. I swear I'm not a masochist, but I really did like that scene because it was the family coming together trying to help Roger in his moment of need. And I really loved that. But what I came to realize in this episode as I was watching it, because prior to this rewatch, I had always considered Roger's silent film moments as him reliving his trauma and that that was his flashback. And when I was watching it this time, there was a line from Brianna in that very first scene when we see Roger again three months later after the events of Alamance. Brianna says the line, it's okay, 70% of communication is nonverbal. Maybe it'll be like those silent films we used to go to when we were in Oxford. That got the wheels turning because then I'm like, okay, so this isn't him reliving his trauma. This is him trying to isolate these terrible things that have happened to him and separate these moments from who he is as a person. He's trying to find who he was and trying to box out this completely awful set of circumstances that have changed who he is. Basically, he's in denial a little bit. And then when he comes back to reality, he's like, oh, shit, like this is I'm still here. I still don't have a voice. These things actually did happen. And you see as the story progresses, these silent film bits get more and more realistic in terms of you gain a little more color and the silent film frames go away and you start to hear echoes of voices and then the color starts to come back. And then all of a sudden with a flash of light, it's you're there living it again. And I think that that symbolizes him slowly starting to accept who he is as a person now and that he can't box it all up and push it to the side. He has to accept that this really did happen to him and he has to deal with the consequences of that. However much it might suck, it's all part of who he is. And that's why at the end of this episode, when he has the conversation with Bree about the tarot card reading with Marsily. And he says, when I saw that card, I thought to myself, this is who I am now, the hanged man. That kind of flabbergasted him a little bit. It unsettled him. He didn't like thinking that he was just doomed to this terrible fate of silence forever, but it scared him. What he slowly came to realize through many a conversation with many different people is that Yeah, he is the hanged man, but he's also still him. Everybody wants the old Roger back, and he says, I'll never be that person again. He's gone. But it's coming to the realization that what happened to him at Alamance, it doesn't define him. It doesn't make him that event, but it has changed him. He's grown from it. And I think to a certain extent, he's gained a lot of strength from this experience. And while, like Bree said, after what happened to her, she wanted to crawl in a hole and die. And I'm sure that's how Roger felt. But he's realized that there is more to life than what he perceives. His voice isn't the only thing that matters and that his family is what matters. 
that is the the grit of this episode. That's what makes his journey so powerful is that it's coming to terms with the things that happen to you and understanding that those things don't control you. They don't define you. So yeah, that I loved Roger's journey in this episode just because of that fact alone. There are a couple of little scenes with Roger that I felt Rick did a particularly good job making the audience understand what his character was going through. There is a scene where the rest of the family is at dinner and Roger is in the cabin by himself and he's got his guitar and he's just strumming lightly on it. Music is in Roger's soul and he absolutely loves that about himself. And I think that is one of the most tragic parts of him losing his voice is that he feels like music was taken from him. And we see that in the scene where he's working on the stairs outside on the porch and Brianna is singing to Jimmy. And he just kind of stands up and just it stops him for a second because that's probably the first time that he's heard music of any sort since he sang Clementine to Jemmy before he left to go to Alamance. And the fact that the lyrics of that song are, you are lost and gone forever. I'm sure that's how he feels a little bit. Like, part of him is lost and gone forever because of what happened to him. And he just bursts into tears. It's just too much for him to handle in that moment to think that this part of his life that he cherished so much is just gone. So while Roger's not like Jamie mourning the loss of Myrta, he's mourning the loss of himself in a lot of ways. So when Roger is singing with the guitar, he's not really singing, he's whispering the words. And then he just can't stand it anymore. His own pride gets in the way, I think, of his progress. And I think that's very true about a lot of people. Like, they're just too proud to admit they have a problem, too proud to admit that things can eventually be okay, but they have to take that first step. And it might not be all sunshine and roses. It might not be the best version of itself, but that if you just take the leap, it's gonna get better. A little fun fact about this scene. When they were filming Roger playing on the guitar and then he sets the guitar on the bed really hard. The very final take of this scene, Rick actually broke the guitar (laughs) and the guitar was an antique. So we will never see that guitar again, that particular guitar, rest in peace. (laughs) But yes, that was a little fun fact about that scene. The other scene that I felt was very vital to understanding Roger's journey in this episode was the scene where Jemmy is playing with his little stick and Jamie calls him a kushla, which I love that word. It means my blood and it's a term of endearment for a child of your bloodline. So then poor hungover Jamie gets up and walks over the table and the tea kettle whistles and Brianna's like, tea's ready. And then Jimmy, trying to be all helpful, is like, oh, I'll get it and reaches for the hot teapot and Roger, without thinking, screams, stop. And it is the most heart-wrenching, wince-inducing sound. Kind of in that moment makes you realize why he's been so afraid to say anything because he knows how he sounds. And to put yourself in his shoes and to have your child, whom you love, just burst into tears at the sound of your wretched voice, that 
I'm sure just shattered Roger even more than he was. Like, as if he wasn't afraid enough to try to speak, now his first words have that associated with them, that he just, his son literally bursts into tears at the sound of his voice, which is pretty sad. Also, fun fact about this scene, the twins, Andrew and Matthew, I think it was Andrew in this scene, they're not quite old enough to know that it's all pretend, like it's not real what they're doing. And so when Andrew would reach out for the teapot and then Rick would yell, stop, Andrew would literally burst into tears because he thought Rick was yelling at him. And then after the director would call cut, Andrew would go, don't you ever do that again. (laughs) And, And Rick said, He told this story at Outlandish Vancouver, but I think he had told it before in several interviews about season five. Rick said it was just like soul shattering because I would have to promise this little boy. It's like, it's okay. It's not real. I won't do it again. Like, it's okay, buddy. I'm not really mad at you. And gain his trust again and then just break that trust on the next take when he would have to yell at him again. And this happened like they did had to do like six or seven takes of this scene where this little boy just had his trust in Rick shattered all over again. <laughs> and he said, I just felt so terrible. Like this is one of those times where he said it was awful working with kids because you're already like trying to walk the line and have a good relationship with them. And then to have to do a scene like this is just pretty awful. So Rick said that kind of stands out to him about this scene. So that's kind of Roger, but then we morph into Brie and Roger and their relationship together because I really feel like that is a critical part of this episode because without Brianna, Roger would have given up a long time ago. And I think that cinematically that is portrayed whenever we see these silent film snippets. When the silent film rolls and then it's like the flashbulb comes on and then it snaps them back into reality, there is a moment where the screen flashes where there's an outline of a woman. And if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. But whenever you get to the end of this episode and Roger is standing on the cliff while they're surveying Everything comes into focus. He's reliving his memories in full color with full sound. And boom, it flashes with that flashbulb. And you see that it's an image of Brianna. And that was the last thing that he saw. That was a really cool thing for me to figure out as I was rewatching this episode. I love that the show puts in that little bit that she was there all along. I think that's how Matt Roberts described it when I was listening to the official Outlander podcast, that Brianna was always there in his struggle to find the light in the darkness. She was always there with him. It took a while for him to realize that, but when he did, it gave him the strength to continue on and move forward. It's not all sunshine and roses. With this episode, there is a lot of relationship tension between Roger and Brie. And for those of you Roger and Brie haters out there, you'll be like, oh, what's new, Chelsea? But I feel like it's a different flavor of struggle with them this episode because it's not about the little marital tiffs. It's not about a will they, won't they. It's about Brianna realizing that Roger's not fighting. At least she feels like he's not fighting. And 
after what she went through at the hands of Stephen Bonnet, there were days when she felt like she couldn't live anymore. That was all part of her post-traumatic stress. Like she, like I said earlier, she wanted to crawl in a hole and die, but she didn't because she has a husband and a son who need her. And that some days she still feels that way. It's not something that you just snap your fingers and it goes away, but you have to fight against it. You can't give in to it. And I loved that conversation between Brie and Roger because you've got Sophie on the one hand who, I'll be honest, she's not my favorite actress. And a lot of times I feel like she's just very background noise. Like there's not anything super impressive about her performance a lot of the time. But this episode, she really blew my socks off. I felt like she did a phenomenal job. So you've got Sophie on the one hand that is doing such a great job showing Roger what she's feeling in that moment and communicating, which Brianna's not good at. Brianna is not a good communicator and she's having to communicate for both of them. And then you've got Roger who is so closed off like he wants to be able to tell Brianna everything that's going on inside him but he can't he literally doesn't have the words and he's just sitting there at the table tears in his eyes teeth gritted like if I could say anything to you I would like I don't want to sit here and have to take this from you but I have to and I think that's part of his struggle is he can't give it back like he can't respond. And that's what she's saying. It's not even that you won't talk. It's that you won't engage. And I don't think he knows how. Like his ability to speak is how he engages. So it's like relearning how to walk almost for him. I thought that scene was fantastic, especially the line, I know this is hard. Your voice, it's your gift, but you're still you. You're still the man I married and I want him back. This is right after the tarot card scene. So Roger's already struggling with feeling like he's not that man anymore. There's no way he could possibly be the man that she married. And I know that that's what he's thinking. That's what he wishes he could tell her in that moment. But again, he's drowning in silence. But when Bree says, I need you, Jemmy needs you, and I need to know, are you coming back or are you lost and gone forever? And I don't even think Roger knows at that point. Like he hasn't reach that pivotal moment where he decides yay or nay, yes or no, in or out. So I just loved, loved, loved Sophie's work in that scene. And it's followed up by a deleted scene that is between Brianna and Jamie. And I don't know if everybody's had an opportunity to watch it. It's probably on YouTube somewhere if you haven't. There were a lot of great deleted scenes from this episode, but this episode was already running super long And I was very optimistic that we were going to get an extended version of this episode in the Blu-ray version of season five, but alas, we did not. But there's a really great scene between Jamie and Brie that was cut that happens directly after this, where Brie is talking to Jamie about how she feels kind of guilty because she gave Roger both barrels. And honestly... I don't blame Brie for losing it on him because she's right. Like, she's been through a traumatic event as well, and she picked up and she kept going because she had to. And to see Roger struggling but kind of going the opposite way and curling in on himself and not engaging, that has to be really frustrating for her to witness that he's kind of just giving up, whereas she fought and she continued on. 
but also the fact that she has a small child. They have a, a child and their son needs him. It's been three months of this. It's not like it happened two weeks ago and she's giving him both barrels. It's been three months, guys. And so I don't blame Brie for her behavior. I don't think she was too harsh in her actions. I 100% identified with her reaction. I think that in that deleted scene, Jamie kind of makes her understand that, that like, it's okay. It doesn't mean you don't love him. There was another great scene before Roger leaves to go survey. And again, Brie has some fantastic lines in this episode. Danielle Barrow wrote this episode and she's fantastic. I really, really hope that she comes back for season six. We don't have all the writers listed yet, but she was amazing. I loved this episode because of her writing. I felt like she really got our characters on a deeper level. The scene with the paper airplane was magical because after the last fight that Brie and Roger had, Roger already feels inadequate with what's happened to him. And then when Brie unloads on him, like that doesn't make him feel good, you know, like he's already struggling. And then have somebody come in and be like, I know you're struggling, but it's not good enough. Like I need you to make a decision and I need you to be stronger and try harder. That's not the best. So I think I understand his thought process. But then to kind of see a scene that happens after the scene with Brianna and Jamie, where it's like, he just, he just needs to know you love him. He needs to know that you're not going to give up on him. So then she comes in and she makes him a paper airplane because she remembers him telling her about the toy airplane that he had when he was a little boy. And she says, I know that a sheet of paper is not made to fly, but sometimes we have to adjust our expectations to bend and reshape ourselves. There's a reason that the first wedding anniversary gift is supposed to be paper. And after the pressures of 60 years, it's diamond, the hardest substance on earth. I want our marriage to grow into something that's strong. I love you, Roger Mack. Oh my goodness. That is so cute. And it makes him understand that she's there. She's not going to give up on him. And he can't give up on himself. And he can't give up on their family. I think having that surety, having that knowledge and that purpose again helps Roger to kind of move forward. And you can almost see being out and not having the pressure of socialization, it helps him to heal. And having Ian with him, who also needs that, he needs to not have the societal pressures of interacting. It helps. Like they have the company of each other, but there's no pressure to be somebody that they're not. They just are. And I love this bromance that blossoms out of this episode with Ian and Roger. It's something that we didn't really get in the books, but man, I'm so glad we got it in the show because it really does just, it makes this episode perfect. Because when Ian comes back, he's not the same bubbly social Ian that he was when he left. When they're sitting at the table for dinner, Marcelie's like, so start at the beginning and don't leave anything out. And her and Fergus turn and they're staring at Ian, like expecting him to have all of these great stories about his adventures with the Mohawk. And Ian just doesn't want to talk about it. John Bell does such a phenomenal job showing this internal agony that Ian has. And we don't know fully 
what it's about at this point in the show, but we really know that he's struggling with something. And Jamie and Claire and Brianna, they all see it as well, but they don't want to pry too much. And so when Marsley asks, tell us about the Mohawk, were they good to you? Ian says, they're good people. And that's all he'll say about it. There's the scene that night when Ian is going into the kitchen and he's staring at the bed and he's thinking about the last time he laid in a bed. You can tell that's what he's thinking about and how he was laying there in the bed with his wife. And that's all I'll say about that until season six, when hopefully we get some more updated info because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But that reason alone of the idea of having to sleep in a bed alone is probably 90% of why when Jamie gets up the next morning, he finds Ian sleeping outside in the breezeway between the surgery and the house. Now, when Jamie asks Ian what's wrong with him, saying like, it makes me heart sick to see you so troubled. And Ian says, don't worry about me. He says, well, will you tell me what's wrong? And he says, I don't have the words. I don't have the words. That means it's really terrible. When somebody doesn't have the words to describe the amount of mental pain they're in over what happened, it just makes me sad. Like, Ian was such a, like, cheery, happy-go-lucky young guy when we last saw him in season four, and then he comes back and it's like his life has been turned upside down, and all Ian will say to Jamie is, there are things that you and Claire both keep hidden from the world. And so, okay, well, that gets you to thinking about all the things that have happened to Jamie and Claire that are terrible that they don't think about, don't talk about. And there are a lot of possibilities there. I mean, I think I know what he's talking about. But then when I was discussing things with my brother, my brother had different ideas on what he thought Ian was talking about. So as a show watcher on one end and a book reader on the other, I will refrain from saying what I think he's going to talk about, like I said, until we kind of get some more details in season six. But yeah, whatever he's feeling, whatever he's dealing with goes deep and it's grief. You can tell it's grief. It's not some like deep seated personal issue or anything like that. Like he's dealing with loss of some sort. So I think that's one reason that going with Roger and not having to talk about the hard things of talking about talking to the birds because he couldn't always understand what the Mohawk were saying or talking about the distance between two points when they're surveying. Like that's as deep as their conversations have to go. And I think that Ian just needed to get away from everything. And so when Roger looks at him and pats him on the shoulder and, you know, thanks him without actually thanking him, that's what Ian says. You don't have to thank me. I came for myself. And so this journey that they go on together, it helps them to heal. And when Roger realizes that he has something worth fighting for, that inner strength that he gets from having something to fight for, having an end goal, allows him to give some of that strength to Ian. And at the very beginning of this episode, in the cold open, when Roger was talking to all of his students about famous last words, Roger asks, we all have heard the expression bury the hatchet, but what does it actually mean? And he says he wanted his students to think about the motivation behind what people say. So we kind of learn, we're told what burying the hatchet means visually by what's on screen because Ian physically buries his hatchet. And in doing so, we're learning that burying the hatchet isn't necessarily about an argument or putting aside past grievances. Like, that's what it means now. 
But in terms of Ian burying the hatchet, it means he's giving up his fight and burying his weapon. So it's giving up. It's not necessarily the modern translation of bury the hatchet, which is like mending fences with someone else. That conversation at the end where Ian and Roger are fighting and Roger kicks the water hemlock off the fire and Ian says, why would you of all people stop me? And he says, you have a wife and a bairn who love you. You have everything. And yet you didn't want to be with them. So that kind of gives you an idea of part of what Ian is dealing with. He's dealing with not having everything that he wants, a wife and a child, and the loss of those things potentially, especially the woman that he loves. And so when Roger tells him that the last thing that he saw before almost dying was Brianna's face. And Ian just takes a step back and says, so there's no escape from it then. Like, even in death, she's still going to haunt me, basically. And that this woman that he loves, she's not dead, but she's lost to him. So she might as well be in his book. It's a really sad story. I know that we're probably going to get a lot more detail in this next season. So I'm trying to talk around book spoilers. But I think that it's good that Ian and Roger can both bond over this. And that, like I said, in Roger finding his path forward, he's gained a lot of strength that he previously lacked that now he can lend to Ian. And I love that he says to Ian, can you continue to fight on? And Ian says, I don't know. And Roger says, well, until you do, pick up your weapon and come home with me. Like, you can lean on me. I'll be there for you. And I really love that that's kind of the direction that they've come to, that they're brothers. It's beautiful. I love it. So that leads to the final scene of the episode where Roger explains basically all of this that I've spent the past 45 minutes talking about. Roger's come to realize that what happened to him doesn't necessarily define him, but it certainly made him look at the world differently. And that moving forward, he's a new person. He's not the old Roger. He has his decisions informed by what's happened to him. But above all of that, he's realized that he will always, always, always fight for Brianna and love her. And so when he says that final line, I will always sing for you, no matter what, no matter where, whether you're there to hear or if my voice isn't able, I will always sing for you. And Rick Rankin said that is probably one of his favorite lines he's ever said in an episode, which I just find amazing. That's such a gorgeous line. It's so well written and there's so much encompassed in that little bit. So with that, we will end this episode. Quote of the episode is a Jocasta line when she says, how careful we'd be if we can't which goodbyes were our last. Love that. It's all about the encompassing If you knew what happened, you could prepare, but you can't, so you have to live every day like it's your last. Wonderful sentiment. And performance of the episode obviously goes to Rick Rankin because, I mean, come on. Like, come on. How could it not be? He was so fantastic this episode. And if you're ever in doubt about his talent, just pull up this episode and watch 10 minutes of it, no matter whether it's beginning, end, or middle. It's great. So... Let's get into one of my favorite portions of this episode, which is where I give you guys the mic to talk about what you thought. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. 
Mary Dorenzo Spinelli says, I thought the use of the silent film was a very creative way to show us this part of the story. As for Young Yin's return, I was anxiously awaiting his return and I was not at all disappointed. John Bell's acting was stellar and the reunion between Young Yin and Roger didn't need any words. It was beautifully done. Yeah, that was great. And I think it really helped to showcase that it's not lost on Roger, anything that has happened to him. Like he realizes how lucky he has been to live the life that he's lived. And having Ian in front of him, Ian gave him the opportunity to be with Brianna and to be a father to their son. And none of that would have been possible if Ian had not made the sacrifices that he made. And he's eternally grateful to Ian for everything that he did, regardless of how miserable he is in his current circumstances. When Roger just puts his arms around Ian and hugs him for a minute and then with tears in his eyes just looks at him and the facial expressions, man, like so powerful. Ian knows without Roger having to say anything, it all comes back to that 70% of communication is nonverbal. It's really great. Kathy LaBerge Preston says, My heart went out for both of the guys. Having read the books, I know what was bothering Ian, and I can understand Roger's loss also. However, Roger had to come to grips with his loss and realize he still had a lot, a wife, a child, and an extended family that loved him. Ian, I just wanted to hug, hold, and try to make it all better. That isn't possible with his kind of loss, but I wanted to. So right, Ian's grief goes way deeper than anybody can imagine at this point. And like I said, John Bell does such a fantastic job portraying that, like so much so that the family knows something really tragic has happened to him. And I love that in that scene with Ian and Jamie, when Ian says he doesn't want to talk about it, Jamie just nods and says, okay, well, I might just sit here for a bit if that's okay with you. And Ian, you can tell how much that moment means to him. Just to have somebody to sit with in silence, the company of another individual and that comfort in knowing that somebody you love is there for you if you do want to talk. I really loved that moment. Paula Parks Barnes says, The black and white movies were a creative way to recap the events of Roger's hanging and his PTSD flashbacks in a quick manner to not take up a lot of time. It was definitely out of the box, but I hope it is a one and done technique. I was not a fan of it on my first watch. It was better on subsequent viewings, but it is not something I would want to be repeated. I did think they tied it in well with Roger and Bree's discussions of going to see the black and white movies when they were dating. John Bell had a remarkable episode. The depth of his despair was tangible. He definitely deserves the recognition of best acting this episode. I think Bree did the best she could, toggling between patience, understanding, and frustration. It was hard for her to lose Roger, even if not to death. Watching someone you love fade away is horrible on those that love them. She wants to fix it, but she cannot do it for him. That's, I think, one of the most tragic things about this episode, Paula, is that she literally has to watch Roger suffer and there's nothing she can do about it. Like, he has to do it for himself. And she can certainly be there for him, but at the same time, like, you can only be patient to a certain extent and then life takes over. It's like, I understand that you're struggling and I feel for you. I really, really do. But I need you to make a conscious effort, a conscious decision to move forward and try to get past this. I will help you in any way that I can, but I need you to take that first step for you and for us. And so I think that that is the hardest part is 
trying to be there for a person, but also to make them understand that the world is not sitting around waiting on them to make this choice. And while they're struggling, everyone else is struggling too. It's not them in their own little bubble, even though it may feel that way. And I feel like that is one of the hardest things about post-traumatic stress. Final comment of the episode is from Melanie Wyatt. This is one of my favorite episodes in season five. The silent movie parts were effective in understanding Roger's flashbacks and PTSD, but I think they used a few too many. I like the scene where Brie tells Roger how she feels and wonders if he'll come back. It expressed all her feelings in one scene from protective to concerned, angry, scared, etc. The one thing that felt awkward about that scene was that he never made eye contact with her. It would have made more sense to me if there had just been one shot of Roger looking at Brie at the end. Loved when Ian came back and all the scenes with Ian and Roger. Also, I fell in love with little Jimmy in this episode. The first time I saw this episode, I thought, gosh, Jimmy has aged about one year since the last episode, but I understand they had to use the older boys for the acting at this point. Enjoyed the use of the paper airplane, Bree making and sending to Roger, then Roger and Ian under the tree. Loved Rolo's reaction, and Roger sending it over the cliff. I think under the tree listening to Ian is where Roger has a turn in his thinking and starts his journey back. I took it to symbolize Roger releasing himself when he finally gets rid of the plane. There was a lot in the conversation with Roger and Bree where she's unloading on him. I think that the reason that they made the choice for Roger to not make eye contact with Brianna is because he's ashamed of everything. He's ashamed of his inability to provide for his family. He's ashamed of his behavior and how he's completely shut down. And when you are in a state like that where you just feel completely and utterly useless, the last thing you're going to do is make eye contact with the person that you love. I just think that's his mental state in this moment. But also about the paper airplane, I think that you could be right, Melanie, that it's symbolizing his releasing himself to move forward. I tend to look at it, I guess it's kind of the same thing in that he's letting go of everything that's kind of held him back at this point, that he's accepting who he is and the things that happened to him and that he's not the same person he was, but that's okay and that he can move forward now. Alrighty, guys. Well, that about wraps up this week's episode of The Sassanac Files. Do not forget to order your copy of Downforce. It hits shelves on Valentine's Day. So excited for you guys to be able to read it. I will try to post a link later this week on my site, probably on Monday since it is release day. Hope you guys enjoy. I know those of you that pre-ordered from me personally for an autographed copy should already have your copies in hand or be getting them shortly. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys think. Until next week, where we are discussing our last episode before the season six hiatus, we'll be discussing Monsters and Heroes season five, episode nine. It is my big finale, episode 75. And that is unbelievable for me to say. I cannot believe I have recorded 75 of these episodes. So thanks so much for all your support. Can't wait to talk to you guys next week for a great finale. Monsters and Heroes, here we go. Can't wait. Alrighty, guys, you stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.